Take your Bibles this evening and turn to Hebrews, actually. Hebrews chapter 11. I had all the intentions to get back into our study going through the pastoral epistles this week, but I was uh, sharing some thoughts with the uh, Pregnancy Care Center, Corner of Hope, out in Shemokin, and uh, I was struck by this passage, and uh, I wanted to um, dive into it a little bit more than what I shared there, because I couldn't escape it. Um, Hebrews chapter 11 is an amazing chapter. It's a chapter that we often refer to as the hall of faith, so to speak. And we have all these heroes here that are listed. And heroes of the faith is something that I think we are often familiar with that idea, that terminology. But as I am uh, want to do, as I often do sometimes, I just like to you know, scour Google Books. <laughs> because if you go on Google Books, you can read old periodicals, journals, books from a long, long time ago. Uh, read them for free because they're out of copyright or whatnot. And you can read all these old books and they're just digitized there because Google is good like that. Uh, and you can read all these out of copyright books. Books from the 1700s that have the S's that look like F's that are really hard to read. But you can still try and make it out a little bit. <laughs> um, but I love to just read kind of what people were writing about, you know, back in the 1700s. Um, but I don't, I don't remember where I came across this, but uh, a while ago I came across this interesting quote, and then I researched it and researched the guy who it came from. And the, the guy writes this, he says, the history of the world is the biography of great men. That's an interesting quote, it's an interesting premise to make, interesting thesis to make. That if you're writing a history of the world, you're basically writing the biography of great men. This comes from the pen of a guy named Thomas Carlyle. He was a philosopher and writer and lecturer that was prominent during the 1800s over in Scotland. And come to find out, he was the leading proponent of this sort of theory. It was called the great man theory, which sought to explain historical events through the impact, through the decision-making, through the resourcefulness of, quote-unquote, great men, or we might even say heroes. And he wrote a whole book on it. The book is entitled, On Heroes, Hero Worship, and the Heroic in History, which is an interesting title in itself, but it's essentially a collection of lectures that illustrate how all of human history turns on the decisions of heroes. Heroes, I think it would be a relative term unless he defined it, and he does in his introduction. Carlyle tries to define what he would call a hero as sort of a pivotal figure that changes the world through force of personality, strength of character, mental prowess, and political polish, which is an interesting list of characteristics and qualities especially when you consider uh, his great men that he includes in this list. He has chapters on Mohammed, the prophet, Shakespeare, the playwright, Martin Luther, the reformer, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the Enlightenment philosopher, Oliver Cromwell, the British politician, and Napoleon, the French military genius, among others. 
All sort of evidencing that Carlyle is convinced, he's absolutely convinced in what he is trying to say through this book, that a study of heroes would make one heroic. It would, this sounds really like new agey, sounds like something we could say today, that it would bring out the hero in you, so to speak. He says, we cannot look, this is Carlyle writing, we cannot look however imperfectly upon a great man without gaining something by him. If we want to become great, we study great men. Sounds like a good way to be a history teacher, I guess. And he says, uh, in his argument, he's saying, studying heroes would reveal the hero inside of you. And he even makes this argument. He says, society is founded on hero worship. Which I think is an interesting statement. Especially just inserting that word worship, a worship of heroes. Because while on one hand he's right... We have founded ourselves on hero worship, but I would ask him the question, if I was able to, how has that turned out? (laughs) Has that made us better? Has studying heroes or lofting them, worshiping them, has that made us better? According to Carlyle, he proposed that it would. I would say that it hasn't made us better at all. Uh, It's just made us want to all be heroes and evolve ourselves And I think that's essentially the point, is that even from a historical perspective, Carlyle's argument to me seems very fragile and very false. You don't become great by studying great men. But I would hasten to say this, too, that I think... That this same sort of idea, this malaise of hero worship has affected the church as well. You might sound that, I think that uh, quite uh, abrasive, but I think we are equally duped into reading the scriptures and applying them as if they talk about great men of the faith. And as if these, this is nothing more than like a compendium of divine Aesop's fables. Here's the moral lesson from David. Or here's the biblical morality that we can learn from Samuel. Or Nathaniel, or Saul, or whoever. Insert fill in the blank. These patriarchs, they make up our Sunday school curriculums with lessons on discipline and character and morality and faith and courage. And here, uh, we have heroes. You think about the great men of the faith, so to speak. Think about Abraham and Isaac and Gideon and Moses and Joseph and Daniel. And we even sing songs about them. Dare to be a Daniel, right? Whoever, who knows dare to be a Daniel? Well, am I the only one? Maybe I'm the only one. That's okay. And that's a good song. That's fine. We can dare to be like Daniel, but do we know what that means? Because I don't think it's all bad. I think we can learn something from these great men. I'm not trying to ruin that. But I think our affinity for quote-unquote heroes of the faith bleeds into our worship and muddies the actual message that God wants us to learn from these quote-unquote great men. I think it mars what he wants us to see from their lives. And I think that's why we have Hebrews 11. 
Because nowhere, nowhere in all the scriptures is Christian, quote unquote, hero worship more clearly seen than when you try and read about Hebrews chapter 11. This hall of faith, so to speak. Because it lists, it models, at least upon first reading, these examples, these standard bearers of the faith. These epitomes of the kind of people that we want our children following. But think about who it lists. Because every single hero, quote unquote, hero that's listed here is not without their blemishes. Like verse 21. Verse 21 lists Jacob. Jacob, the deceiver here, is listed as a man of faith. A man who, was, who duped his brother and deceived everyone pretty much his whole life. Or verse 23, Rahab is mentioned here in the hall of faith. One woman who is known for her promiscuity before coming to Christ. Or verse 31. Look at verse 31. And it says, by faith, or excuse me, by faith, the, or that's 31 is Rahab, excuse me. Um, I think I lost my verse. I wrote down the wrong verse. I, I apologize. The, somewhere in here is the verse about the, about the Israelites and their constant unbelief. Constantly wavering, constantly choosing the wrong thing over what God had told them. Or perhaps go to verse 32. Hopefully I wrote it down. Yes, 32, where it talks about Samson. Samson is a member of the hall of faith. One who is known for his pride, who got in the way. Or even in the same verse, 32, David. He's in the hall of faith. A man who is mostly known for his lust and murder and deception. Is that the type of person you want your son or daughter to look up to? A person who not only lusted and murdered to cover up that lust, but thought he could get away with it. (laughs) Until until Samuel comes up to him and says, thou art the man. (laughs) This is... The list, the hall of faith. I often read this list and ask, how did they get included here? (laughs) What's, What's the barometer for getting included in the hall of faith? Because it appears as if uh, there's not much of a barometer. Especially, uh, there's one though, one character, verse 7. This is the character I want to look at tonight. It says, verse 7, by faith, Noah. Noah, of course, is a character that we don't often question being uh, considered as a person, a hero that we want to have our kids look up to. It says, Noah, or excuse me, by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. We know about Noah. Most of what we know about Noah is his, uh, his, is his ark and bringing in the animals two by two, so to speak. But he's a man of exceptional honor throughout the scriptures. In Genesis 6, you can turn there because we're going to read a little bit from Genesis chapter 6. But in Genesis chapter 6, 9, we are told that he finds grace in the eyes of God. Let me get there, excuse me. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. Or excuse me, verse 8, excuse me, I apologize. Verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. 
Or in verse 9, jump there where it's at the, at the end where it says, And Noah walked with God. The only other person that is described in that way is Enoch, who walked with God. And this is his character. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. He's the man that is chosen by God to usher into the world a new era of mankind after the flood. Here, where he's given this commission to build an ark. He's an old man at this point. He's around 600 years old. And he has this. He, he finds grace in the eyes of God. Which I think is interesting considering, considering how God has already seen the world. Notice Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth. And it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. Both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Fascinating to me that Noah is the one chosen here. He's given this warning. You can read the verses 11 down through verse 21. He's given this warning of this judgment that's coming. Noah, get ready. Prepare yourself. There's a judgment that's coming on the earth. Because man is only evil continually. He's told how to endure it. He's building this ark. He's told that a flood, a worldwide tsunami, the tidal wave would take over the earth. Something that is widely unfamiliar. But notice verse 22 of chapter 6. The first three words. Thus did Noah. (laughs) Simple faith. And this God who chose him, he displays this sort of courageous belief, I like to say. Because in the face of all the scorn and the derision and the mocking and the ridiculing around him and the assault, insults that he endured, it just says, thus did Noah. Followed God. He believed, going back to Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7, where it says, he believed in things not seen as yet. And it led to the saving of his house and the world. Go back to, well, you don't have to go back there, but I'll flip back there and just read that verse again. Because it's so interesting to me how verse 7 echoes verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 11 where it says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Again, verse 1, where it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This is the lesson of faith from Noah. It's believing in something that you do not see, you do not have confirmation of. Noah evidences this for us. And if we were writing the story of Noah, this is where it would end. It would end with Noah saving the world. It would end in Genesis chapter 9, verse 17. 
The world is saved. The flood has receded. God is putting his covenant of a rainbow in the heavens as a sign that he will no longer ever cover the world in a flood in the judgment of man's sin. Look at verse 15 of chapter 9 of Genesis. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. God here makes this covenant with Noah. All is well. Rainbows, maybe at this time there's even unicorns, so it's really happy. It's really good. Everything is well. The flood is gone. Noah and his family are safe. Time to rebuild. Time to restart. And he pledges God, the Father, Creator, pledges his grace to these people here. But what's interesting is the story continues. Again, if we were writing the story, it would stop right there. Stop at verse 17. Done. Noah is a hero. He's one that we should look up to. But the subsequent verses at the end of this chapter are so at odds with the rest of Noah's life that it's hard to imagine that they came from the same person. That they're describing the same individual. Look, Genesis 9.18. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah. And of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be an husbandman. And he planted a vineyard. So he has... Taken up farming and he's tending this vineyard and he's literally functioning almost like another Adam here. The earth is restarting. God has purged the earth of all those who were sinners except for Noah and his family. Look at, the, look at the promise or the sort of duty that God ascribes to Noah in chapter 9 verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. It should sound familiar if you're familiar with Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Because it's essentially the same exact promise that God gave to Adam and Eve. But exactly like that new creation, this new creation, this purged creation, would be quickly followed up by a massive fall. Look again at verse 20. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, it was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. Noah, this great man, this man of faith, succumbs to stooping drunkenness, and falls into open wickedness, lying naked in his tent. This is a shameful, disgraceful scene. Something that shames his entire family. And as we are going to see, it disrupts his entire family. This man, favored by the Lord, fails to govern his own body. Right after this enormous victory and blessing, he succumbs to his more base urges. 
And notice what happens. Verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. Ham sees his father drunk and naked and reveals his true character. Because it's not just that he's telling and reporting. It's he's seeing and he's telling rather than mercifully caring for his father. He's spreading the news of the shame and the disgrace that his father is lying in. He's announcing it. He's not mercifully caring for his dad. He's reporting to other people what is happening. Look at what dad is doing. He's revealing his self-righteousness. We're not as bad as that guy. We're not as bad as our own dad. Guys, look, brothers, look at our dad. Look at how shameful he is. He announces his father's shame. But really all he's announcing is his own foolishness. Because as Proverbs 14.9 says, fools make a mock at sin. And such is what Ham is doing here. He's gossiping. He's spreading rumors. Spreading rumors about this shameful scandal that should have been uh, honed in on this single incident. It shouldn't have been as open as it was. And instead of caring for this, his own father who had fallen into this disgraceful state, he announced his father's failure. And look at the next verses. Because there's Ham announcing it to his two brethren. But look at verse 23. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders. And went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward. And they saw not their father's nakedness. How different the reaction. How different the reaction of these two other sons of Noah. Instead of looking and seeing and reporting and spreading it even further. They don't even want to look upon their father's disgrace. They want to reverence their dad. So they go into where their father is backwards. Averting their eyes. Showing as much respect for this disgraced dad as they can. They cover their dad's shame, demonstrating just incredible compassion. It's an incredibly graceful scene by these two other sons. But they seek to uh, restore their dad. It reminds me of what Martin Luther says. I love it when he writes this. He says, if the saints fall into sin, let us not be offended. Much less should we rejoice over the weakness of others, haughtily esteeming ourselves braver, wiser, or holier than they. Let us rather endure and cover up and even put a good construction and excuse such errors insofar as we can, remembering that perhaps tomorrow we may suffer what happened to them today. (laughs) You want to have... Compassion for your fellow brothers and sisters who fall into sin. Remember that that could be you tomorrow. Such as I think what Shem and Japheth are displaying here. They knew themselves to be sinners too. They weren't above this disgrace. Compassion is generated when we know ourselves to be the worst sinners that we know. 
like 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 that we've been talking about uh, occasionally on uh, Sunday evenings, that, uh, that this is the gospel, a faithful saying that tr- Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Unless you read that as if that's you, you will often react like Ham instead of his other brothers. You will rejoice when someone else falls because you can say like the Pharisee, God, thank you for not making me like that man over there. But here, look, watch. Noah wakes up. Look at verse 24. And Noah awoke from his, from his wine, from his drunkenness, and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood three hundred and fifty years, and all the days of Noah were nine hundred and fifty years, and he died. He wakes up, finds out what has occurred, occurred, And he speaks this curse onto Ham's family and blessings onto the lives of Shem and Japheth. And then we aren't told anything else that he does for 350 years. The last thing we know that Noah did is a disgraceful, shameful thing right after the flood. I find that fascinating. Remember the old flannel graphs in Sunday school? I often wonder, where's drunk and naked Noah in the flannel graphs? (laughs) Probably wouldn't be able to show that. That's okay. But you have to ask the question. When we talk about Noah, what do we know about Noah? We know about everything before this moment. We know about his ark and his animals, and that's it. We don't know, we don't often hear about his failure. But we have to ask the question too how is this man, the preacher of righteousness, How is this man a hero of the faith? This guy wouldn't make Thomas Carlyle's cut for heroes of great men on whom the world turned. And yet this man saved the world by being faithful right in the moment where he was. You see, the fact is Noah is not a hero at all. He's a sinner just like you and just like me. And that's good news. Why? Because God saves and uses sinners. Because that's all that there are. That's all that there are. The world isn't made up of heroes and those who wish they could be. It's made up of sinners saved by grace. You see, I like to think that Genesis 9, among many other chapters in all of Scripture, Genesis 9 is one of the greatest evidences that this Bible is not man-made. If we were constructing the scriptures, this part would be excluded. Why would we want to loft, have a person that we loft as a hero of the faith, have this black mark on their record? We wouldn't want our kids reading about this heroic figure falling into such disgrace and dishonor. We would rather hide our skeletons. We would rather cover up all these flaws. We don't want our mess-ups exposed. 
That's why it's hard to read parts of Genesis and Judges and all throughout the rest of the scriptures. Because those are difficult passages that don't sound like there's much hope there. But I think God includes them for that very reason. Why? It's to show that the dark stories of man's failure, they reveal just what we were singing about. That there is a grace that is greater than the darkest, most depraved sin that you can imagine. And it's found in this man, Jesus, who comes and saves us from our sin. One of, the, my, one, of the other, one of my other favorite chapters in the Bible is Matthew chapter 1. You don't have to go there, but Matthew 1 is one of those boring genealogy chapters where it just says this person begat that person, that person begat that person. Well, what's fascinating is it's the genealogy of Christ as the king, and Matthew is showing you, he's proving to you that Jesus is the rightful Messiah. But what's fascinating is all the names that are included in that list. He even goes out of his way, Matthew in Matthew chapter 1, to include referencing David and Bathsheba, bringing up again the scandal of that scene. And he says, yes, even them who have this dastardly affair, they are in Christ's own family tree. Jesus is airing his dirty laundry for all to see. Saying, this is how messed up my family was. <laughs> this exhibit, A through triple Z, we might say, of man's depravity and man's hopelessness and self-salvation. That's the kind of stories that we have in the Old Testament. It's evidence that man can't save himself. <laughs> and he tries really hard to do it. But he never can. He makes things worse. But again, the Old Testament, the stories here, aren't Aesop's fables for divine characters. Here's the moral lesson from this person. You know what they're here to show us? The type of God that we have. These stories show the type of God that we have. The type of God that comes down and saves us. He's the God of comfort. Who doesn't utterly just trash us when we fall. Even though that's what we deserve. He's the God of compassion. Who just delights as it says all throughout the scriptures. Who delights to show us mercy. I think of verse Nehemiah 9.17. Which says thou art a God ready to pardon. Gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and of great kindness. Or Psalm 86.15 which says, Thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. All that we know about Noah is before his fall. Again, I think that's so fascinating. All we remember about this Noah is Noah and the two-by-two two animals coming into the ark. <laughs> And yet he has this tragic fall, this failure after what we know about him. Which leads us to this fascinating but sometimes perhaps offensive theological truth. 
Which is this, that if your theology does not account for the fact that your biggest blunder might be ahead of you, then you might have the wrong theology. If your belief in the gospel doesn't account for the fact that your biggest failure might be in the future, you have the wrong gospel. You have a wrong type of view of what it means to be a Christian. Noah failed. All these men and women from Hebrews chapter 11, they failed miserably. They were deeply flawed. Going back to Hebrews 11, Noah had his drunkenness. Moses, who's included there, he had his murder. Before he made any attempt to lead the exodus of the Israelites, he murdered one of his own kind. Gideon had his notorious doubts. Read the story of Gideon from Judges 6 and 7. The man is not a valiant warrior. He's a man who doubted God constantly. David, as we know, had his lust and his murder and his deception. Paul. He had his persecutions, a man who literally terrorized the church. And he's a man of God. Peter, the man whom Christ used so notoriously to found his church in the early days of the church in Acts. is the same man who betrayed him in his hour of need, saying, I didn't know him, and cursing him. Even saying he's cursing him in his defense of not knowing him. These men, these great men, so to speak, are not great because they are great. They are not heroes because they did something heroic. They're great only because they've been redeemed by an even greater God. By God who met them in the midst of their sin and failure and showed them immense, immaculate grace. Which is why I want to say Carlisle was wrong. Thomas Carlisle is wrong. History is not the biography of a few great men. The world does not turn on its axis because of the decisions of heroes. Or the deeds of great men. The world turns on God's confounding choice. Where instead of going after strong people, he goes after weak people. When instead of looking for great men, he just wants those who are indubitably faithful. You know what my my favorite part of Hebrews chapter 11 is? My favorite part starts in verse 32. Look at what it says. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. 
They were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. I love that. You know why? He doesn't list any names there. Women and others. These are the people that the world isn't worthy. Not the heroes that we remember, but the people that are unnamed, that are faithful. Regardless of what's going on around them. These collective others who endured trials, he says, of cruel mockings, scourgings. They were sawn in two. (laughs) They were crucified for what they believed. Crucified and put to death for what they preached. He says the world wasn't worthy of them. And we don't even have their names. We don't even know who these women and who these others were. And they're listed in the hall of faith. These others are perhaps the most faithful of all the people in all of your scriptures. Because we aren't told their names. We aren't told what type of impact they had on the world. We aren't given a clue as to how they changed the world, so to speak. And he says, the world wasn't worthy of them. Why? Not because they were heroic, not because they were great. It's because God used these people in a great and mighty way because of their faith. Many of you have probably heard this before and so it might sound already like old hat and that's okay. But I can't help but read this section of scripture without thinking about my granddad. My grandfather, his name, we called him Poppy. Poppy, Richard Elton Gray. He's a pastor. For 50 years, he ministered and served. Occasionally, or not occasionally, for 30 years also, he was a professor at Bob Jones University at the same time. He was pastoring. In his early days, he was pastoring two churches at the same time in North Carolina. Back when he had to drive like two hours just to get to one of those churches. He also was a superintendent at a school at one time. And when he passed away in 2016, I will never forget just reflecting. I gave a eulogy at his funeral, at his memorial service. And I will never forget just reflecting on his life. Because here's this man, this pastor, who is so faithful to the word of God, faithful to the ministry that God has given him, doesn't have a statue, doesn't have a building, doesn't even have a pew named after him. But did that hinder him from being faithful to the Lord? <laughs> you bet not. He, I would hasten to say, is one of these others who endured trials, mockings, ridicules, jeers, taunts from those that were around him. And he was faithful. He didn't care that he had a legacy, that he had a monument named after him or anything like that. He was faithful in the moment, a quiet faithfulness. Why? Because he knew who was using him. He knew the type of God that he had. He knew that he wasn't a great man, but he had a great God. That's the truth of Hebrews 11. 
It's the truth of the Bible. It's the truth of all of our lives. There are no such thing as quote-unquote great men. There's no such thing as heroes. There are only great sinners and an even greater God who seeks them out, saves them, and uses them for his purposes. This is what God does throughout all of human history. He finds great sinners. He uses them, remakes them by his wondrous love and mercy. And uses them to proclaim the good news of that wondrous love and mercy. This is what God does throughout the whole Bible. All of scripture, all of human history is turning on this choice of God to go after sinners. It's not turning on the decisions of great men. The story of man, the story of the Bible, is not a story of great men doing great things for God. It's the story of a great God reconciling sinners to himself by giving himself to sinners. We can't be heroes, and that's okay. Because the hero has already come and saved us. He's already come and shed his blood for us. Such is why we can have all the boldness and courage and faith in the world. Because his blood is on our account. His blood covers all of our sins. This is the grace that is greater than all our sin. This is your true and better hero. Let us pray.